Let's bow in prayer again. Lord, we thank you that your word truly is a firm foundation. There is no firmer foundation for us. As we live in a world of innovation, a world that has exponentially added to the knowledge of what's available to, to know, yet, Lord, your truth remains. Your truth is what we need desperately. Your truth is what sustains our spiritual lives. Your truth points us to you and reveals you to us. And so we pray that you would now guide us by your Holy Spirit, who guided the authors of the scriptures and breathed into them, Lord, uh, the wonderful words of life. We pray that you would now apply them to our own hearts and lives and use them, we pray, to accomplish your purposes. We pray in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. I would dare say that if someone mentioned to you that they had recently seen a film and they began to talk about the film and how much they appreciated it, thought it was great, thought you should go watch it, and you say, well, oh yeah, I've seen that film, I saw the preview. Another guy said, no, but did you see the film? He said, oh no, I saw the preview, I don't really need to see the film. It looked pretty good. And after a while you think to yourself, what's wrong with you, man? You don't, the preview is hardly anything. The preview is just a preview. The preview just has a little bit of excerpts here and there of this long film and a film actually takes a long narrative and tells a story. It has a beginning, it has an end. And has a very, obviously, hopefully a significant conclusion. Sometimes I think that's sort of the way that we read the Scriptures. We read the Scriptures almost like it's a preview of a film. It's very brief. We just get a little bit of a glimpse here, a glimpse there. We don't really get the flow of what's happening and make sense of the narrative that God is trying to say. So what we're looking at during these uh, weeks now in the summertime is we're looking into the book of Acts, which I call the second book of Luke, because that's really what it is. Uh, Luke wrote his gospel, then he wrote the book of Acts, and it's easy to get caught up as you read the book in all sorts of unusual names of cities, people that you're not really familiar with, and all sorts of government officials and all people like that. But let's never lose sight of what the big picture is in the, in the second book of Luke, that is the book of Acts. It is really an account of what Jesus continued to do after his ascension through his apostles and his followers. It's a book about Jesus. It's a book about what Jesus is doing through the Holy Spirit's work in people's lives to make sure the gospel continues to go outward. It's not a travel log. It's not just designed to help us understand uh, people's uh, travel experiences, whether by ship or by land or whatever. No, it's to provide us a glimpse into the working of the Holy Spirit in the lives of, people, of the people of God who were on a gospel mission. And the Apostle Paul is a living example of this powerful work of the Holy Spirit to transform a life through the gospel. In his earlier years... What was Paul's life like? Well, he was passionate for sure. He was passionate about himself. He was passionate about hanging on to his greatest treasure at one point in his life, and that treasure was his impeccable image as a do-gooder. He thrived on making other people think that he was indeed someone to look up to, spiritually speaking, morally speaking, 
religiously speaking, in any way possible. And he meticulously followed all these rules. And therefore he became a person who was inflexible. It was this way or no way, and I'm all about this. And that's all I'm living and thinking about. Well, at this point we learn of Paul. When he was that way, well, I guess we should call him Saul. His life really, I think, was invested in doing whatever he could to keep as many people out of the kingdom of Christ as possible. That was the net effect of his passion for himself. But Paul's heart was radically changed. And at this point now in Acts chapter 21, if you have your Bibles, you can get that open in front of you, page 1360, 1326 in your pew Bible. Acts 21. Paul's heart now is focused on another treasure. No longer is the treasure that he values the most himself. Now the treasure he values is Jesus Christ. It's knowing Christ. It's loving Christ. It is indeed the treasure of Christ in his life. And his passion now has turned from himself to his passion for Christ so that others might know him. And he describes his zeal for bringing the gospel to lost people and his willingness to be much more flexible, to be much more interested in, in trying to work his way into the lives of people who are uh, similar to him or different from him. He describes this, this approach in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I just want to brief, read a brief paragraph to you. Listen to the way in which he now is evidencing the fact that his heart has been changed in how he deals with the people around him. He says, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19. He says, Though I am free from all men, that is, I'm not living under obligation to have to meet up to anybody's standards or they're uh, having control over me, I have made myself a slave to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jew I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law. Though not being myself under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, that is Gentiles, as without law. Though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ. That I may win those who are without the law. To the weak I became weak. And that I may win the weak, I have become all things to all men, that by all means I may save some. What a statement of a heart that has changed from being wrapped up in himself to being very much passionate about winning the lost. It is this, when we read words like this, it seems to me we're seeing the overflow of a heart that, where the gospel has taken hold in a wonderfully changing way. That the, the, Now the apostle has a, a willingness to, to condescend to go from what he always wanted to do. Now he's coming down and saying, I'm going to adopt all sorts of approaches or strategies to deal with the people around me so that unbelievers might come to know Christ. Now with that as a background, I'd like to read what is recorded now in the second book of Luke, if you will, Acts chapter 21, beginning in verse 17. Acts 21, verse 17. <clears throat> and when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. Now this is Paul now finishing and completing his third missionary journey, finally making his way back to Jerusalem with the church and the leaders there, 
welcoming him. And now the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. And after he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they had heard it, they began glorifying God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they're all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Therefore do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow, probably a Nazarite vow, which is a vow that they devote themselves fully to the Lord. Uh, Take them and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses in order that they may shave their heads and all will know that there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. Then Paul took the men and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice to the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. And when the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the multitude and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place, meaning the temple. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. And when, For when they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian in the city with them, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. And all the city was aroused. And the people rushed together, and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. And while they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort, and all Jerusalem was in confusion. And at once he took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, and when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. And then the commander came up and took hold of him and ordered him to be bound with two chains and began asking who he was and what he had done. But among the crowd, some of the shouting, some were shouting one thing and some another, and when he could not find out the facts on account of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he got to the stairs, it, it so happened that he was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people kept following behind, crying out, Away with him! Princess. Doesn't that sound familiar with someone who also was uh, given that kind of a greeting in Jerusalem about 30 years before? And as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Then you are not the Ephesian, the Egyptian, who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? But Paul said, I am a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city, and I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. Thank you for your patience and let me read that extensive passage, but I think I'd like to just step back from this text, and I think I'd like to, to... Look at the text, and what is revealed here 
in the heart of someone who has a burden and a compassion for lost people. Because I think what we find in this text are at least three examples, three heart attitudes in the Apostle Paul that witness to the powerful working of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who is now leading Paul to make Christ known among people who still are lost. And he's trying to win as many people as he can in his lifetime. Let's look at what these character traits, these heart attitudes are. First of all, notice here, what is not mentioned in the text? As you read through the account, if you know anything that's preceding this account, you know that there's been a long buildup of Paul saying, listen, I've got to get to Jerusalem because I'm collecting this money for people who are hurting there. There has been a famine in Jerusalem, and people are very much in dire need. And when he finally arrives in Jerusalem, it's so odd that the account does not say anything about this collection. I find that to be strange beyond strange. And yet that's exactly what happens. It's this financial gift. It was a big deal. Paul had, was involved in doing for the first time he's out among Gentile cities who have come to know Jesus. And he's saying, would you out of your compassion give money to these Jews back in Jerusalem? I mean, that's just, that was just something that was radical for the gospel to be involved in, in bringing these two disparate groups who used to hate each other to now have compassion for each other. And so here he is bringing this finances showing a concern, and then he arrives there and nothing's said about it. But what's going on here is that Paul's concern for these famine victims obviously was the overflow of his heart of love for God. Because what God has been doing in Paul's life is that in the person of Jesus Christ, Christ emptied himself, laying aside his privileges of power and glory in heaven, coming down, obeying the will of the Father, submitting himself even to the point of death, death on the cross. It is Jesus who is dying for someone like Paul who is blaspheming Jesus, who hates Jesus, who is doing everything he can to destroy Jesus' kingdom. And yet here is Jesus seeking him out, drawing him to himself, saving Paul when he least deserved it. And Paul's heart obviously is stirred. And he, at this time, has a heart now that is very much concerned about the hurting people around him, the impoverished people around him. Uh, he is concerned about the poor. Why? Because Jesus had done for him incredible compassion for him in lowering himself to get involved in someone like Paul. When Paul was spiritually impoverished, when Paul was spiritually blind, when he was corrupt, and the fact that there's no mention made of this offering, I think, is by design. I think Paul emphasized, don't you mention this being a big deal to Luke. He's saying, listen, I don't want any accolades. I don't want any notoriety. What do we see here in the heart of Apostle Paul? I believe one of the traits of someone who God uses to make an impact on unsaved people is humility. Humility. You can't miss it here in this text. There was a time when, Christ, when, again, Paul was all about gaining notoriety, having people notice him and what he was doing. Now he's saying, I don't want attention. Christ was his treasure. No longer was Paul living for recognition and approval of other people. Look at what Paul says in verse 19 of chapter 21. 
Paul communicates to his fellow believers there, the leaders there in Jerusalem, his various accomplishments. And there have been many things that he has accomplished. I mean, the list is long, and he takes his time and goes through it. But notice what he says in verse 21. After Paul greeted these leaders in Jerusalem, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done. He mentioned the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. That is very significant. That is the record of someone who is humbly acknowledging the place and the preeminence of God at work and giving him glory and credit. We have on the book table out here a booklet called From, Humil- From Pride to Humility. Very, very, very good book. Uh, the real actually a little booklet. Stuart Scott says this about this is how humble people operate. He says, humble people are focused on God and others, not on themselves. Even their focus is on others out of a desire to love God and to glorify God. Humble people have no need to be recognized or approved. There's no competition with God or other people. They have no need to elevate themselves, knowing that they have been forgiven, knowing that God's love has been been shown to them undeservedly. Indeed, a humble person's goal is to elevate God and to encourage the people around them. In short, they no longer live for themselves, but they're living for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. 2 Corinthians 5. That's what humble people are like. And the way that Paul spoke about his ministry there in Macedonia and Achaia, where he had just come from all these cities along the shore of the, Macedo- of the uh, Sea of Mediterranean Sea, notice the response that brought from the way he delivered it. Verse 20, the church leaders were glorifying God. They were not glorifying Paul. They were not celebrating the greatness of this man and his great missionary skills and abilities, which I'm sure he had many of them. But notice that Paul's now with a habit, he is showing that he wants to give God glory and make much of God and what God is doing. I think of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9, where Paul talks about himself in comparison with the other apostles when he thinks through their, um, their being called to be an apostle and him being called to be an apostle. He says, I am the least of the apostles, he says. I am not worthy to be called an apostle because he says, I persecuted the church of God. I was trying to destroy it. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, he says. And his grace toward me did not prove vain or empty. But I labored even more than all these other apostles, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. What's he saying there? He's saying, I have invested tremendous amounts of effort into ministry of the gospel in all sorts of places, but I realize it's God's grace working in me and through me. He says, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and you have believed. He's saying, I can't fully explain it. Yes, we've been involved in it, but God has done the work. That was his main focus. That's a sign of a humble person. And it seems to me that one of the ways humility operates in the heart of somebody is that they have compassion for the lost because why because they're not living for themselves it's not about themselves 
It's about making much of God and making much opportunities for other people in need. I see another example of humility in this text. And I'm not going to get into all of the complications of this vow and all of the different things that happen regarding this vow. It's very complicated. But I want us to see that it is an example, I believe, of a humble-heartedness on the part, on the part of Apostle Paul. Do you see how it got started? It wasn't the Apostle Paul's idea to do this. It was the idea of the leaders there in Jerusalem. So here comes this super effective missionary coming in, reporting what all has been done, and he humbly listens to the leaders there in Jerusalem say, listen, we've got an idea for you. We think this is what you ought to be doing now that you're in town. Apparently, there was some concern among this large population of Jewish people that there was potential for a lot of division among these Jewish people and they're saying we need to make sure we promote unity among them and there are some people Paul who think that you've been out saying no longer is there any concern about Moses and the laws and so therefore you don't need to be following anything there anymore he is saying you don't need to follow the laws in order to know Christ and to be saved but he's not saying you have to just throw everything away <clears throat> but he's trying to show his devotion to the Jewish heritage and traditions and the reason this was so important is because he was gone into these Gentile lands for so long and he was perceived as coming back now and he was considered ceremonially unclean. So they're asking him, would you please do this so that you might not, you know, uh, cause all a big, big problem here in Jerusalem. So he purifies himself. He gets involved in paying for four other guys to have whatever sacrifices need to be made for them to have their vows fulfilled. He does this in response to the request of the leaders there in Jerusalem. In some ways, it's a risky thing to be involved in. And yet, he submits himself to being involved in trying to do ministry with other people in the context of realizing he's not the only one that knows how to do ministry. I find that quite profound in the sense of understanding that Paul is saying, I want to be a part of the church here. I'm not just the only person that does ministry the right way. I'm submitting to those around me who can help me and guide me so that my life will be used by God to make an impact of people who don't know Christ who still need to know Him. Do people sense in your heart and your life the impact of the humility of Christ taking hold in how you deal with other people? how you deal with the way you speak of what goes on in your life, what you accomplish? Is it very evident that there's humility at work there? Well, clearly, Paul is very much concerned for his fellow Jews. And he sees that there are so many religious people around him, but they're still lost. The second character trait I'd like to encourage us to notice here in this text is that as you read through this account, as you continue on in the book of of Acts, and you think of it as a movie now, if you think of it as a film, it's a little longer now, not just the snippets here and there, but if you get the whole flow of it, you know that there's been a long record of Paul's journeys here, starting in chapter 9 through verse 20, and he has endured multiple riots. He has endured so many violent protests, it's hard to number them all. And here he is, Having already been arrested numerous times, he's already been beaten, he's already been stoned by angry mobs, 
most of which were made up of his fellow Jews. And I don't know about you, but if that happened to me once, I would have adopted some other approach. I would have done whatever I could to avoid having that happen again. But it has happened numerous times, city after city, that he went into in order to make known the Messiah who died in disgrace on a cross. So Paul, I believe, is repeatedly, lovingly, compassionately seeking to reason and to persuade his fellow Jews in every city that he went to. He would still do it. He would do it again. He would do it again. And now in Jerusalem, here he is putting himself out there again. Paul knew what kind of reaction he would get from any of his fellow Jews. Why? Because he used to think that way himself. He was the one that would get all upset. He was the one that would begin to start screaming and say, this person should be arrested. This person should be uh, you know, shackled up and, and you need to get out of here. Paul knew what he was into, all this outrage. So when he comes to the city of Zion and it's mobbed with all sorts of Jewish pilgrims who are there, he heads to the temple to try to qualm any rumblings of disunity among his own people. And what happens? Another riot ensues. Verse 30. You can tell the way Luke describes it. He is just very much concerned about the fact that here it is again. It's happening again. Now what do you learn from here? I would say that we see in the Apostle Paul, because of his putting himself out there so many times and having these things happen to him, you see compassionate love. Compassionate love. It's not easy to love people who hate you. It's not easy to love people who reject you. It's not easy to love people who hurt you. It's not easy to love people who despise you, who wish you were dead. And that happens numerous times for Paul, if you could read the, old, the whole account. And even verse 31 of this text. It seems to me that one critical component of evangelism is self-giving, agape love. Love that is described in 1 Corinthians 13 as being love that never fails. Love that endures all things. If we're on mission with the gospel and we're seeking the lost, it assumes that we are willing to remain in difficult situations. We're willing to remain in difficult situations. Why? For the sake of other people. Rather than seeking our own ease through escape, through trying to just uh, avoid problems and difficulties, it means that when an unbelievers are making life difficult for us, a loving, compassionate heart is going to, what? We're not looking for a way out of it. We are willing to stand in there, take some abuse in the name of seeing a lost person through the process of being evangelized. And I don't say abuse in the sense of literally uh, inappropriate abuse, like for instance in a marriage. I'm not saying that, that that needs to be tolerated. I am saying that we take from people a lot of their rejection and their dislike toward us and so easily we are accused of being people who hate other people just because we have a certain way of 
viewing uh, sexual standards or something like that, it may demand a lot of us. But that's what compassionate love does. Now laying down our lives may not involve the exact same response that Paul had to go through. He literally was beaten. I hope that you and I will not be literally beaten. But we may have to endure cyber-verbal beatdowns, if you will, on social media. We may have people who are taking what we say or various views that we've expressed and they find it offensive and therefore we get all sorts of angry response that comes our way. It seems to me that compassionate love is not going to avoid every single difficult person in this world. We deal with difficult people in difficult situations. That's what Paul did repeatedly. And as I thought about that, I thought of this analogy. When I was growing up, I uh, went to camp and we took some training in junior life saving. How many of you have ever had life saving, a uh, lifesaver uh, training, like swimming, you know? <clears throat> okay, several of you have. Very rigorous, very challenging. Thought I was going to drown a couple of times myself uh, trying to learn how to save other people who are drowning. But uh, I found it interesting that one of the things that they teach you. When you are approaching a person who is flailing in the water and they're barely staying above uh, the, the surface of the water, that as you approach them, it is very important that you approach them underwater, you go down, and then you identify where they are and turn them around so they are not facing you when you come up out of the water. Now, why is that? Because you don't want them to see you? No. It's because... In their panic, in their desperation, if they see you coming, guess what they're going to do? They're going to be all over you, and they're going to pull you under. And they're going to use you to stay up. So what you have to do is come up behind them, you turn them over, and then you put your arm around them, and you carry them, and turn them up over you like this. So they don't have their hands out to grab you. Otherwise, you end up drowning. Now I see that as sort of a point in this analogy here, and that is this, that life-saving efforts by lifeguards, obviously they can be dangerous. You're putting yourself in a situation that's not easy. It's difficult to rescue someone who's in a very difficult plight. But a heart filled with compassionate love will seek out that drowning person when they're in need. A heart filled with compassionate love will put oneself at risk and trying to save that person who's about ready to go under. And I think that's sort of what is the point I'm taking away from this second book of Luke, is that Luke is trying to help us see the heart of Christ. The heart of Christ being lived out and incarnated in His people is, here's compassionate love that doesn't give up on people. It goes back time and time again, trying to help them enduring all things so that they might know Christ. What an amazing love Christ has for the likes of you and me. He didn't give up on us and still doesn't give up on us. Let's not give up on those who are lost. A third character trait here I want to just touch on briefly uh, found in Acts chapter 1. As I read this text and kept rereading it, I was just amazed at the number of times that Paul had to deal with 
the same thing over and over again uh, this particular time in his attempts to try to win the lost he runs into erroneous conclusions that people are making about him about the gospel about Christ and they're based on faulty assumptions for example verse 21 you have the leaders there in Jerusalem. They pull Paul aside. They say, listen here, Paul. This is what they're saying about you. Which indicates that they are now coming up with their own assessment of Paul. It's not accurate. It's not what he really thought. Not what he really was doing. But that's what they're saying about him. And so they say he's forsaken his heritage. He's become a non-Jew. And that's not true. Verse 29. The Jews from Asia have accused Paul of what? Later on, after Paul went to the temple, they, now they accuse Paul of saying, okay, Paul, you've defiled the temple. Why? Because it says in verse 27, is it based on facts that they draw this conclusion? No, it's on, based on conjecture. Supposing that Paul had brought Trophimus, the Ephesian, into the temple. Based on this assumption, here comes this massive riot and that brings all these soldiers into play, who are, of course, there's a, there's a big uh, Antonia fortress is right there in the temple complex. They see what's going on. They run down there. And then the soldiers get involved. Here's more false assumptions playing into this. And what do they say? Hey, Paul, are you that Egyptian guy we heard about years ago that you had all these 4,000 you know, fellow terrorists and you guys are just wreaking havoc everywhere and you've gone off into the wilderness somewhere? Are you coming back now? Are you that guy? Paul's like, what? I'm a person who came from a significant Roman city. I'm a person who's not just from the sticks. I have a very good education. Listen to me tell my story. It seems to me that one inevitable challenge that we should expect when it comes to trying to deal again and again with people who are unbelievers is that unbelievers reach false conclusions based on false assumptions about all sorts of things. We should expect that. We should expect that. They have false assumptions about God. They have false assumptions about Jesus. They have false assumptions about what it means to be a Christian or how one becomes a Christian or what Christians do. Or They have false assumptions about the biblical view of sexuality. They think that we're many times people who are just narrow-minded uh, hateful people. They think that uh, they have no understanding about churches sometimes. They have make all these assumptions that are false about that based on some experience they had at some point or about money or the Bible's reliability or historicity or whatever. And so the, li the list is endless of how they could easily draw the wrong conclusions. But the ministry of evangelism involves being willing to be patient. And that's the third one. Patience. Patience, willing to answer questions, willing to try to make things clear, willing to try to speak into the people's assumptions to try to help them understand the truth. So sometimes that's answering questions again and again, responding to false accusations again and again, and challenging people to think through their own assumptions, to make them think through, is that really based on something you know to be true, or are you just assuming that to be true based on Hearsay, something you read one time. Have you even read the Bible? Many unbelievers have never done so. They've always just heard what some other people have said about it. 
So what do we find in this text? I think we find the heart of Christ. The heart of Christ who came to seek and to save the lost. Christ who was humble, who was compassionately loving people like us, and who is patient, oh so patient. May we be like Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would once again impress upon us how wondrous, how glorious, how amazing and astounding is your grace that you would seek us out. That you would, Lord, humble yourself and lay aside the things that you rightfully deserve to enjoy and that Jesus would get involved in this sin-ridden world. That he would be rejected and mistreated and put to death on the cross, taking on our punishment that we deserve. Lord, may we be humbled by that act of humility on the part of our Savior. And I pray, Lord, that you would also work in us your love, a love that is truly compassionate for the lost, and that you would give us a patience that is willing to offer patient answers and insights and willing to speak into the lives of people around us who oftentimes are very deceived and clueless about what the truth really is. So Lord, we pray that you would use us for your glory. Forgive us for times when we rob you of your glory, when we take credit onto ourselves, when we let people's response to the gospel, whether it's to receive it or to reject it, as if that has anything to do with our significance or value in your eyes. Lord, help us to be people who are on mission for you and being used by you, no matter what the outward response, help us just to be faithful, loving, and humble, and patient, and kind. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.